Ah, good morning and welcome. This is the first time I get to talk to you guys in our Mark series. Um, as you, many of you know, our church for the last about four months has been going through the book of Mark. Mark is only 16 chapters long, so we're on the home stretch, which means I get the honor and privilege of speaking to you about the crucifixion and death of Jesus. Um, framing it in a position of honor and not like, oh, why did I get stuck with this one? Like this one on Sunbeam graduations, everybody's happy. And it's like, yeah, let's talk about the crucifixion. Let's do it. Um, so yeah, it's, it's been a really interesting time planning for this, uh, knowing everything that's going on this Sunday. So I pray that you hear what God has to say through whatever the words fall out of my mouth in the next 30 minutes. <laughs> Um, So we're going to start by just reading Mark chapter 15 in its entirety. I think when it comes to the crucifixion, it's really important, especially as Christians, to read it and let the full weight of what happened um, hit you, Um, because it's one of, of, if not the most important part of the Bible. So let's jump in. If you want to open up your Bibles to Mark 15, the words are also going to be on the screen. I'm reading from the Christian Standard Version, so it might be different. But here we go. Oh, no. As soon as it was morning, having held a meeting with the elders, scribes, and the whole Sanhedrin, the chief priests tied Jesus up, led him away, and handed him over to Pilate. So Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? He answered him, you say so. And the chief priests accused him of many things. Pilate questioned him again, aren't you going to answer? Look how many things they're accusing you of. But Jesus still did not answer. And so Pilate was amazed. At the festival, at the festival, Pilate used to release for the people a prisoner whom they requested. There was one named Barabbas, who was in prison with rebels, who had committed murder during the rebellion. The crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do for them as was his custom. Pilate answered them, Do you want me to release the king of the Jews for you? For he knew it was because of envy that the chief priests had handed him over. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd so that he would release Barabbas to them instead. Pilate asked them again, then what do you want me to do with the one you call the king of the Jews? Again, they shouted, crucify him. Pilate said to them, why? What has he done wrong? But they shouted all the more, crucify him. Wanting to satisfy the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas to them. And after having Jesus flogged, he handed him over to be crucified. The soldiers led him away into the palace, that is, the governor's residence, and called together the whole company. They dressed him in a purple robe, twisted together a crown of thorns, and put it on him. And they began to salute him, Hail, King of the Jews! They were hitting him on the head with a stick and spitting on him. Getting down on their knees, they were paying him homage. After they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple robe and put his clothes on him. They led him out to crucify him. They forced a man coming in from the country who was passing by to carry Jesus' cross. He was Simon of Cyrene, the father of Alexander and Rufus. 
They brought Jesus to the place called Golgotha, which means place of the skull. They tried to give him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take any of it. Then they crucified him and divided his clothes, casting lots for them to decide what each would get. Now it was nine in the morning when they crucified him. The inscription of the charge written against him was the king of the Jews. They crucified two criminals with him, one on his right and one on his left. Those who passed by were yelling insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, Ha! The one who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. Save yourself by coming down from the cross. In the same way, the chief priests... In the same way, the chief priests with the scribes were mocking him among themselves, saying he saved others, but he cannot save himself. Let the Messiah, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross so that we may see and believe. Even those who were crucified with him taunted him. When it was noon, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. And at three, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lema sabachthani, which is translated, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? When some of them heard this, they said, see, he's calling for Elijah. Someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, fixed it on a stick, offered him a drink, and said, let's see if Elijah comes to take him down. Jesus let out a loud cry and breathed his last. Then the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. When the centurion, who was standing opposite him, saw the way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the Son of God. There were also women watching from a distance. Among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James the Younger and of Joseph, and Salome. In Galilee, these women followed him and took care of him. Many other women had come up with him to Jerusalem. When it was already evening, because it was the day of preparation, that is, the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent member of the Sanhedrin, who was himself looking forward to the kingdom of God, came and boldly went to Pilate and asked for Jesus' body. Pilate was surprised that he was already dead. Summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he had already died. When he found out from the centurion, he gave the corpse to Joseph. After he bought some linen cloth, Joseph took him down and wrapped him in the linen. Then he laid him in a tomb, cut out of the rock, and rolled a stone against the entrance to the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, were watching where he was laid. Pretty heavy stuff. Um, We've been talking so far in this series a lot about how Mark plays with um, the humanity and the divinity of Jesus. We see all throughout the book, we've seen Jesus preaching to crowds about the kingdom of God coming, and then the next section, he's hungry and wants something to eat. And then he goes and he's healing the sick, and then he comes back over here and he's frustrated with life, like with the people around him. He's frustrated. And then you see him performing miracles, and then you see that he's tired. It's just been this ping-ponging back and forth between humanity and divinity the whole time. Like, who is Jesus? Is he human? Is he God? Why not both? But uh, Mark 15, when you read it at first glance, it seems like a very human chapter. 
It's his death. There's nothing more human than death. If he was divine, why did he have to die? You see this pain that he goes through, this mocking, all of these things that are so human. So is there, there are these divine sprinklings throughout. Not many at a first read. Um, when the darkness came over the whole land when he was approaching his hour of death, like at noon, it was dark. That's not a normal thing. Um, and then the other little peak of divinity is when the curtain of the temple was torn into. So I posit this morning that Mark 15 oozes with divinity in every, not, maybe not every word, but just where we are in the Bible. We are at the climax of not only Mark, but I would say the entire Bible. This chapter is so important in God's master plan to bring us back to him. So we're going to look at what that was. Why is Mark 15 and other chapters on the crucifixion, why is this so important to God's plan? So we're going to zoom way out uh, and go back to the beginning, which Wynn already stole my thunder a little bit, but it's fine. (laughs) It's fine. (laughs) So we're going back this thing to Genesis. Um, so as when read earlier, now I don't have to, God, this is in the creation. If you're not familiar with the Bible, God created this beautiful earth and it was perfect. He created man and woman and they lived in perfect commune, communion with God in the garden of Eden. And that was God's intention that these people would just be able to bask in his presence. He talks about God just walking around the garden with Adam and Eve and it's beautiful and in Genesis 2.25, it says, Adam and Eve were naked without shame. Can you even imagine what that must have been like? Like, I don't know a moment where I haven't felt shame in my adult life. But they were just in this perfect community. And there was one rule. They couldn't eat from this tree. Spoiler, they ate from the tree and then began this long story of God pursuing his people to get them back. So this, sin, this curse of sin and death came over all of humanity because of this fall. And it banished Adam and Eve at the time from the Garden of Eden and therefore from the constant perfect presence of God. They no longer had that access. Like, hey, God, you're walking around the garden. Like, there was no more of that. They had to leave. And I always wondered when I was uh, younger, like, why did God have to, like, I get them banished from the garden. Like, it couldn't be perfect. But why did God's presence have to leave them? Because he loves us. Like, couldn't he just, like, make it work? And um, the thing that... um, Basically, sin is just the antithesis of God. God is so holy and so perfect that sin is, they're incompatible. They cannot be near each other. And the imagery that comes to my mind is, uh, goes along with a little story. So we used to have this beautiful bread box. We got it as a wedding present. And we used to keep um, some vegetables and fruits in there that didn't need to be refrigerated like lemons and onions. You're like, I'm cooking and I need a lemon, so I'm going to open up the bread box. It kept it out of the way. You couldn't see it. But we would inevitably forget about the stuff in the bread box. 
And I'd go and I'd come home from the grocery store and I'm like, okay, I have some stuff I'm going to put in here. And I open it up and moldy rot. It's just putrid. Makes me want to vomit. And that feeling, that visceral reaction against this death that has taken over my lovely lemons is God's reaction to sin. Not the sinner, he loves his creation, but the sin in our lives, this curse upon humanity, cannot be near it. So he had to come up with a way to get his people pure enough to let him be in their presence. So how did he do this? Um, it's essentially the whole Old Testament is this story of how he seeks to get back into communion with his people. So he starts really small with a guy named Abraham, and he's going to say, your descendants, all of them, I will bless them, and I will use them to bring salvation to this world. And then we're going to fast forward after that. So Abraham has a bunch of kids, not a bunch of kids, has a bunch of descendants, and they end up enslaved in Egypt because there's so many. And in the book of Exodus, there's a story of liberation. God liberates his people from slavery and brings them out into the wilderness through a mighty hand. He sends plagues. He parts the sea. And he establishes them. He says, I will be your God and you will be my people. This is the covenant that he proclaimed. And in order for the covenant to work, the law came into play. So the law was this, if you read any of these books, Exodus, Deuteronomy, Leviticus, and Numbers, it is the law and how Israel dealt with the law. These sets of rules and regulations on how people communed with each other and how they would then be able to commune with God. So it had societal implications. It had, um, obviously, religious ceremonies. It had all sorts of things on how to treat these situations and these contexts. And all of it was meant to make his people a holy people so that he could dwell among them. So in Exodus 25, he, God, commands this building of a tabernacle, which would be where he dwelt with his people in the wilderness. In Exodus 25, verse 8, it says, They are to make a sanctuary for me so that I may dwell among them. That's his goal in all of this, is just to be near his people. And if you've ever tried to do the, like, reading through the Bible, you get to these chapters on sacrifice and the tabernacle, and it's like, there's six or seven chapters of immense detail on how to build this tabernacle, this place that God's presence would rest and be near his people. And you read and you're like, oh my gosh, like, do I need all of this detail? And yes, every single, I'm not going to read it, but all of this detail down to the threads, the colors that they would use to build these curtains, how wide the spaces need to be between all of the different poles. All of these things point to the holiness of God and how perfect his people needed to be in order for him to commune with him, how perfect his surroundings need to be just because that's who he is. So this tabernacle is built and the glory of the Lord is such a cool chapter. It talks about 
a cloud coming down and filling this tabernacle, and people couldn't go in because it was so holy. And people who tried to go in were struck dead because they didn't purify themselves the right way, because there was so much detail, so much detail in how to do every single thing and the different sacrifices that people had to make. In Leviticus, it talks about the burnt offerings, the fellowship offerings, the grain offerings, the sin offerings, the guilt offerings, and the Day of Atonement, and all of these things that they had to do in order to maintain their position with God. That he was going to dwell among them, so they had to make themselves holy because he is holy. And they had to sacrifice things every day, every month, every Sabbath, every Passover, in the Day of Atonement, and all of the festivals. All of these sacrifices that, because they were not perfect, they were just animals. Not just animals, but this is an interesting fact I learned while I was studying for this. God breathed his life into humanity in the beginning, and God breathed his life into his word. And those are the only two things in the whole Bible that God breathed his life into. I think that's so cool. It's like our long-lost brother. Um, But these animals, they were never going to be perfect enough to cover the sins of his people. So they had to continually do this day after day in order to have God's presence rest with them. So God made himself small fit inside this tabernacle in order to be near his people. And then after this law is set up, the rest of the Old Testament is this roller coaster of Israel trying to do the right thing sometimes. They go through periods where they have kings, they have judges, people who follow God, people who don't. Ups and downs. There are prophets, there's destruction, there's exile, there's rebuilding. All of these things that happen just because God is constantly pursuing them, saying, turn back to me, turn back to me, and I will bless you. All he's trying to do in the Old Testament, you can see it in almost every story, is God longing to be with his people once again, in perfect communion, just like he intended it at the beginning. We, so I'm not going to go into all the ups and downs. Our church just finished a really awesome study called the Bible Course, where we kind of did this massive overview of, like, what is the Bible? Like, how, what's the overall plot? But I'm going to skip ahead to Isaiah, which Isaiah is read a lot in Christmas time because it has a lot of predictions about the coming Messiah because there's this hope in Israel with all of these ups and downs that there will one day be salvation. Oh, oh gosh, I totally forgot about my diagram. Oh, the tabernacle, it's so important. This thing isn't working. (laughs) This one. Um, So this is an example of what the tabernacle would have looked like. And over here is where they did all of their burnt offerings, and then certain priests could get into this middle room. Um, And then this Ark of the Covenant, where it's had the Holy of Holies, is where God's presence actually was. Like, people, one person could enter into that room once a year to make atonement for the sins of Israel. One person, once a year, could be in the presence of God because he was so holy and we were so not. Yeah, it'll be relevant later. We'll look at this again. 
Um, so we come into Isaiah. Isaiah, the first half of this book, Isaiah was a prophet. The first half is a scathing rebuke of Israel. Like, you guys are not doing it right, and you will be punished because you have not followed my law. You haven't followed my covenant. You haven't sought me first. You've worshipped other gods. Like, and you're going to pay for it, and I'm not going to bend on that because you are my people, and I'm going to punish you. Really hard to read, but the second half of Isaiah is a book of comfort. It's saying, despite all of this, you are still my chosen people, and I will restore you, and I will save you, and you still have purpose in this world. Despite all of the times you've messed up, there is salvation coming. And they viewed that as their Messiah, which they imagined would be this grand king, which we've talked about a lot in Mark. When Jesus enters, he doesn't enter like a king. He enters like a normal dude. Um, Well, other than the donkey thing. But anyway, they expected this magnificent king to free them from oppression, free them from the oppressive kingdom of Rome and all of this other stuff. So... We come out of Isaiah 51, and it talks all about salvation. Salvation is coming for you. But we're going to look at Isaiah 53. I'm not going to read the whole thing, but you should read it. Um, the title over it is The, Su- the Servant's Suffering. Right after this whole thing on salvation, The Servant's Suffering. So, verse 2, it says, He didn't have an impressive form or majesty that we should look at him. Verse 3, He was despised and rejected by men, a man of suffering who knew what sickness was. Verse 4, Yet he himself bore our sickness and carried our pain. We We in turn regarded him as stricken, struck down by God and afflicted. But he was pierced because of our rebellion, crushed because of our iniquities, Punishment for our peace was on him, and we are healed by his wounds. We all went astray like sheep, and we have all turned to our own way, and the Lord has punished him for the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted. He didn't open his mouth like a lamb led to the slaughter and like a sheep silent before her shearers. Do you remember when Pilate was like, dude, like, do you not want to say anything? Listen to what they're accusing you of. And he said, nothing. The silent lamb willingly led to slaughter. He was taken away because of oppression and judgment. He was cut off from the land of the living. He was assigned a grave with the wicked. After his anguish, he will see light and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will carry their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him the many as a portion, and he will receive the mighty as spoil, because he willingly submitted to death and was counted among the rebels. Yet he bore the sin of many and interceded for the rebels. This is our Jesus, the one who we just read about his dying. This prediction in Isaiah 53, Mark 15, is the fulfillment of that suffering servant who bore our sin forever. And how do we know that? Da, 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 da. The climax of literally the whole Bible, I think, is this verse. You can argue with me later uh, if you don't agree. Can we go to the next slide? Thank you. 
1538, then the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. You might just read over that when you're going like, okay, that's kind of weird. Like, don't know what that means. But you think back to this tabernacle where the presence of, can we go to the next one? Thanks. (laughs) This tabernacle where here it's labeled veil, but that's what the curtain was. This place that blocked off the presence of God from reaching his people, was torn from top to bottom. God saying, no more will I be bound by this place. I will commune with my people in perfect unity because Jesus' sacrifice covered their sin forever. Amen. This is what it's all about. And the bonus bits that we'll talk about next week is that Jesus raised, was raised from this death and is coming again. And that we have this living hope. But more importantly, this living hope means something because we are justified. We are clean. We are purified forever. We don't have to sacrifice two pure goats daily because of our sin. We don't have to do that anymore because Jesus paid that price. He was the word of God made flesh. Another fun fact. I'm just going to work these in everywhere I can. The inscription above Jesus' head that said the king of the Jews. It was meant as a, a a mocking, a joke. A podcast I listened to says this, the phrase the king of the Jews was what in slang they called the word of God. The law. The law, they would say like, oh yeah, the king of the Jews is the law. And Jesus was the law made flesh. And he, ugh, so cool. So they were just openly admitting that this is the word made flesh right in front while Jesus is dying on the cross. So cool. There's so many things in here that just blow my mind. But Jesus bore our sin and shame. The curtain was torn so that God's presence was free. And what does that mean for us? today. It means that we are free. We're free to bask in the presence of God without fear and without shame, that God is here with us and he wants to be with us. This whole book is about him pursuing us. It might not seem personal if you're not familiar with this Bible. Like the Old Testament, it is heavy and it is hard to understand, but every verse seeps with the intention of God to bring his people back to him. And that includes you, that includes me, that includes our children, our grandchildren. Every single human who walks this earth, God did this, all of this for. So cool. So we're free. I'm going to tell a story about freedom because I was at the beach last week and it was July 4th. So as an American, you're always thinking about freedom, July 4th, sorry. Um, So I was remembering in uh, April, my husband and I went to Greece and we had this hotel. It had a little pool in it. It was really very relaxing. This pool was really deep and there were no nice little benches along the sides, which is where I like to sit and just look out and enjoy the view. So I couldn't stand up, like the water came up to here when I was standing in the pool. So since I've been swimming, since like before I could walk, I just float on my back, just kick back and just ping pong between the sides of the pool until my fingers get so pruney that I have to get out. 
So Mike, at the end of this couple days uh, at the beach, or it wasn't the beach, but whatever, he was like, hey, like, could you teach me how to do that? I want to do it. It looks really relaxing. And I was like, oh, yeah, sure, very confident that I have the ability to teach someone how to do something that I just instinctively know how to do. I didn't know how to do it. I, like, told him so many things. I was like, yeah, like, make sure your belly is out of the water and, like, get your toes up and, like, put your arms out. Failed miserably. No fault of his. Mostly I'm blaming the teacher here. But I was just, it was an enigma to me. I was like, why can't, why don't I know how to do this? I just, I just do it. So last week when I was at the beach with my mom, since moms know everything, I asked her, I was like, how, because I was out in the ocean doing this thing that I do again. And uh, I was like, how do you float? How do you teach someone to float on their back? And she was like, you just have to let your body be free. Already planned the whole freedom thing into my talk, and I'm like, are you kidding me? So, and I remembered back to trying to teach Mike, and his muscles were so tense, like trying to make your body fit into this form that you think it's supposed to fit into, and it just makes you sink. You can't float when you're holding, holding the tension in every muscle of your body. You have to just let it go. I won't break out in song, but I want to. Um... (laughs) How relevant is that to our freedom in Christ, especially if you know him as your personal savior already? If we are carrying these things, we can't rest in his freedom. If we're carrying things that he already carried to the cross and put to death, we're carrying, I am the worst of them. I carry my fear and my shame like it's part of my identity because I've never known life without it. It's like, well, if I'm not worried about this, then what am I doing? I got to carry it. But no, I can't, because if I carry it, I'm not free. And we all have something. It might not be anxiety. It might be, I, I don't know what it might be, but everybody's carrying something that they're not meant to be carrying. And it's holding you back from experiencing the perfect freedom in Christ, this freedom to live and learn at the foot of God's throne, to make mistakes and to find out where we're going in this crazy world. Like, why am I here? We're free to explore that without worrying about what might be next. We're free to live in the presence of God without the burden of our past. You can let it go. We're free. We are free. So are you free in Jesus today? When you wake up tomorrow morning and you get ready and you go to work or you get your kids ready or you do what you make a cup of tea. I don't know what you guys do in the morning, but when you wake up, are you carrying something that you're not supposed to carry? And I would encourage you to open up this word. See what God says to you and let it go. And rest in Jesus. Because he covered your whole life. Everything wrong with you. He covered that with his blood forever. And if you don't know Jesus, it probably is a pretty easy question to answer. Are you free? No, you're not. If you don't know Jesus, you don't know the freedom that awaits you. And I would encourage you this morning, like this whole book, it, you might know about it. It t- 
tells this magnificent story of a God who created you and loved you, still loves you, and has been pursuing you since before you were born, namely, like, over 2,000 years ago. He's been pursuing you, all for the intent of having perfect communion with you. So, if you are feeling like that is something you want, like you want this freedom, you want to taste it, then I'm going to lead a very simple prayer because Jesus did all the work for us. It's really simple. Um, I'm not going to have you say it out loud. I'm not going to have you raise your hands because this is between you and God. But I would invite you to pray with me. Any musicians can come back up. Um, And if you are a Christian... I'm going to give you an option of what you can do in this moment. I would ask you either pray for people around you or in your life that don't know Jesus. As we're praying this prayer, pray for the people who might be praying it. It's a really awesome thing to do. Or you can pray about the burdens you're carrying that you're not meant to be carrying. Because Jesus wants you to be free. He wants it. So, Let's pray. Holy Father God, I am sorry for my sin, for the times in my life that I have messed up. I believe that you are the Son of God and that you died and were raised again to cover my sin, to make me free. And I ask that Jesus come and make his home in my heart and be my constant companion and guide. Holy Father, I ask you this morning to let your presence rest here like it did in the tabernacle in Israel. God, that your glory would fill this place. And we thank you this morning that you have never stopped pursuing us and that you want to be in communion with us. You are so holy and so good and so loving. And we thank you for loving us. In your precious and holy name, amen.